A word of warning. There are descriptions of violence in this episode that some listeners may find disturbing. It's 3 a.m. A seven-year-old boy named Al wakes up and gets out of bed. The year is 1938. Al has a plan. He's going to break into a neighbor's house with a friend while everyone is asleep. Al knows this neighbor. He runs errands for her after school to earn some pocket money. The boys make it inside her home without getting caught. Al opens the front hall closet. And there it is. A fur coat. Al and his buddy are thrilled. It's exactly what they wanted, but not for the sake of fashion. Instead, they take it with them. They climb to the top of the stairs, wrap the fur coat around the banister of the stairway, and slide all the way down, up and down, up and down. Al would later recall that he slid down so many banisters the fur rubbed off in big patches and the coat was ruined. That stolen fur coat, petty larceny at age seven, marked the beginning of Albert DeSalvo's prodigious life of crime. A life also marked by violence, of cruelty he said was done to him, and of cruelty he inflicted on others. Albert would continue breaking and entering into homes as he grew older. By the time he entered adulthood, he would go further, targeting women and sexually assaulting them. Then, in 1965, Albert DeSalvo would claim he was the Boston Strangler and confess to killing 13 women. I'm Dick Lair from ABC Audio. This is Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler, Episode 3, The Confession. The story of Albert DeSalvo begins in the town just outside of Boston where he stole that fur coat. I've come here with criminologist James Allen Fox of Northeastern University. So James and I have now come to Chelsea, Massachusetts, and more specifically, we're on Broadway, which is where the DeSalvo family lived when Albert was a young boy. Chelsea's this tiny industrial port city just north of Boston across the Mystic River. Broadway itself, is densely populated, a retail district of storefronts all up and down for blocks, and above the storefronts, two or three stories of apartments. And at 355, 353 Broadway, the DeSalvo family lived in Al's early years. It's no exaggeration to say it was a house of horrors. Albert's father, Frank, was a monster. He was an alcoholic, violent, Abused his wife, Charlotte, abused the kids. One tale about how he at one point picked up Albert by the neck and started shaking him. And it got worse. According to the Boston Herald, a psychiatrist would later testify that as a child, Albert, quote, watched his father break his mother's fingers and watched his father perform various unnatural sexual acts. We know what Albert says he and his siblings endured because he was sent to a reform school at the age of 12. And while he was there, 
he became part of a landmark study of juvenile delinquents. The records were sealed for many years until I discovered them in an archive at Harvard University. The Harvard study was an amazingly detailed set of records of about 500 delinquent boys. Albert was boy number 402. According to the report, he talked to the researchers about his father's abuse, about how he tried to throw things at his father to defend his mother. Albert listed off his own misdeeds, how he betrayed people he knew and stole things like the fur coat that belonged to his neighbor. A social worker in 1944 wrote that Albert, quote, related his delinquencies with a grin and a great deal of pleasure. Here's James Fox again. The history that they have about his childhood certainly would foretell some to grow up to become a career criminal. Not 100% chance, but certainly likely. But there's nothing that would predict an individual who strangled women. That's the difficulty, that there's no clear-cut, reliable warning signs of vicious, violent crimes that are reflected in the Boston Stranglings. Yeah, you can obviously something's lurking there, but as you say, it's, how could you ever predict a killer like this? When Albert DeSalvo left his home in Chelsea and entered adulthood, there were more warning signs that he was disturbed and dangerous. A psychiatrist who evaluated him would later testify that Albert had a relentless hunger for sex. By the 1960s, Albert lived with his wife and two children in Malden, a suburb of Boston. While they were there, a series of bizarre crimes started taking place. A man was talking his way into women's homes. He would approach women, young women, and compliment them on their beauty and their figure and said he worked for a modeling agency and uh, he thought they would make a good candidate to be a model, but he needed to measure them. So he would take out his measuring tape and start measuring them and the measuring started to get very intimate. Police called the perpetrator the measuring man. The measuring man seemed to have a knack for getting women to trust him. Parade Magazine reported that investigators said he had a pleasant manner, a crew cut, and big ears. Police would ultimately catch the measuring man, but in an unexpected way. They'd arrested a man for breaking into a woman's apartment, and he confessed to the measuring man crimes. That man, it turned out, was Albert DeSalvo. In addition to the breaking and entering charge, Albert DeSalvo was convicted of assault and battery and other crimes tied to the Measuring Man incidents. He received an 18-month prison sentence, but was released early after six months for good behavior in April 1962. A couple of months later, Anna Slessers was killed in her Back Bay apartment. Albert would remain free for another two and a half years, from spring of 1962 to the fall of 1964. All the Boston Strangler murders would take place during that time period. Albert was arrested again in November 1964, not because he was suspected of being the Boston Strangler, but for something else. The police were after a man wanted in Massachusetts and three other New England states for assaulting hundreds of women and committing dozens of rapes. The suspect reportedly attacked four women in one day, in four separate towns. Here's James Fox again, 
explaining the spate of crimes. He would knock on doors or ring doorbells, explain to the person there that he was sent to make some repairs, and they would say, well, I didn't know you were coming. Well, I can always go maybe next, next month. And many would let him in, and he would sexually assault them and rape them. There was one detail that stood out as police questioned witnesses. The man who attacked these women was wearing green clothes, according to news reports. Police started to refer to this suspect as the Green Man. Albert DeSalvo was a handyman, doing odd jobs like painting walls, and he would reportedly wear green work pants while on the job. Police arrested him in 1964 for sexually assaulting one woman who had reported an attack in her apartment in Cambridge. But then Albert made another stunning confession. He admitted to the Green Man crimes. And it wouldn't be Albert's last confession. Albert DeSalvo was sent to Bridgewater State Hospital for evaluation. Bridgewater was a state prison for those described at the time as quote-unquote criminally insane. A 1967 documentary about the institution showed unsafe living conditions and cruel treatment of inmates. While he was at Bridgewater, a prison psychiatrist later testified that Albert was diagnosed with, quote, sociopathic personality disorder marked by sexual deviation. He was 33 years old. And although he was arrested for crimes of a sexual nature, he was still not suspected to be the Boston Strangler. According to the Boston Sunday Herald, he'd been listed simply as a house burglar on the card fed into the task force's computer database. In early 1965, Boston detective Phil DiNatale, who was the chief investigator on the Boston Strangler case, got a tip. His son John, who reviewed what he says were his father's case files, says Phil received an anonymous letter that named a suspect. And ultimately, it was that unidentified nurse at the Mass General Hospital that Prophet Albert DeSalvo's name. Other than that, I don't know if they ever would have found him. Phil DiNatale tracked Albert down at Bridgewater. But Phil would never get to question his prime suspect. Albert had gotten a lawyer, and not just any lawyer, but a hotshot defense attorney by the name of F. Lee Bailey. F. Lee Bailey was well on his way to becoming one of the most famous and controversial defense lawyers in America. Three decades later, he would be part of a team that would successfully defend football star O.J. Simpson against criminal charges of murdering his ex-wife and her friend. But in 1965, before he met Albert DeSalvo, F. Lee Bailey was representing a murderer in Massachusetts. There would be an unusual connection between the attorney, that client, and Albert. John DiNatale describes how that relationship started. Well, F. Lee Bailey had been down to Bridgewater State Hospital on a number of occasions to, to visit with his client, George Nasser. George Nasser was Albert DeSalvo's cellmate. The lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, described George as, quote, highly intelligent. But George was also deeply mentally disturbed. He was facing murder charges for killing a gas station attendant during a robbery. That's why he was serving time at Bridgewater. And it was at Bridgewater that he met Albert DeSalvo. George was a murderer, and no question about it. And so a lot of people thought that George Nasser was the strangler. 
and that he was feeding the information to Albert DeSalvo, and DeSalvo was then wisecracking with the rest of the inmates there and telling everybody how important he was. And ultimately, NASA told Bailey, I think this guy, DeSalvo, could be the strangler. Newspaper reports raised questions about whether George himself might be the strangler, though he would vehemently deny this. It was Albert DeSalvo, who seemed to enjoy bragging about his exploits since he was a boy in that juvenile delinquent study, who would confess to being the Boston Strangler. An inmate at Bridgewater later testified that he was there when Albert confessed to George Nasser. But not everyone thought the confession was that straightforward. George Nasser was instrumental, we believe, in persuading Albert to confess to the stranglings and primed him and groomed him to be the strangler. Elaine Whitfield Sharp is a lawyer who was hired in 2000 by the DeSalvo family to help clear his name. There were witnesses who saw George Nasser feeding Albert a lot of detail. According to Elaine Sharp, George Nasser wanted the reward money offered by the governor for turning in the strangler. For Albert DeSalvo, there was the possibility of book and movie deals. Albert really believed that he was going to get financial remuneration for both of those. So that was his motivation. Albert was potentially facing multiple life sentences for the Green Man crimes. If he could sell this story, that he was the Boston Strangler, then some of the money from those deals could support his wife and two children if he was in prison. In March of 1965, Albert DeSalvo confessed. Albert spoke to Assistant Attorney General John Bottomley, among others, claiming he was the strangler. Albert talked about the women in a tape-recorded interview for the prosecutors about the way he supposedly murdered them. The door was open, and she only had a, um, a house coat on. And I, it looked like it was pinkish, or pinkish with little prints on it. But there was a catch. This confession could not be used against him in court. His lawyer had made an agreement with the Attorney General's office to protect his client. Here's F. Lee Bailey in a 2001 interview with ABC News. No defense lawyer in his right mind has a fellow confess to first-degree murder where the electric chair is out there without some kind of protection. The agreement would render Albert's confession to the Strangler murders inadmissible because he was deemed, quote-unquote, mentally incompetent by the courts around the time he confessed. But the recorded confession would allow prosecutors to publicly say they had caught the Strangler. Nothing he said could be used against him in a murder trial, and it never was. He was tried for the offenses for which he was under arrest when I first met him. And that was the so-called Green Man escapade. Albert DeSalvo would later be found competent to stand trial for the Green Man crimes. During the Green Man trial, Ethley Bailey referenced Albert's Boston Strangler confession multiple times in court as he tried to argue for the jury to find his client not guilty by reason of insanity. He wanted Albert to receive mental health treatment instead of prison time. According to newspaper reports, Albert said he wanted psychiatrists to study him and figure out why he was a killer. In 1967, a jury found Albert guilty of the Green Man crimes. Ten charges in total, 
including assault, armed robbery, and breaking and entering. He was sentenced to life in prison. Albert was never charged or convicted of the Boston Strangler murders. John Di Natale says some members of law enforcement weren't satisfied with the outcome of the case. But for others, it seemed like the Boston Strangler was finally behind bars. The killings had stopped. Everybody was happy. We got the Strangler, and now we're going to put him in jail for the rest of his life. And everybody was going to live happily ever after until they didn't. Only a month after his sentencing, Albert would escape from prison with two other inmates. John Di Natale remembers his father's reaction to the news. And that was an unbelievable manhunt. And my dad actually came and took me and my two sisters and my brother and brought us to my aunt's house where we stayed for a couple of days until they found him because he didn't know what was going to happen. 30 hours after the escape, Albert DeSalvo gave himself up in a uniform store. One news agency reported he'd escaped to try to call attention to his need for psychiatric treatment. Some Bostonians were outspokenly embarrassed over the city's apparent inability to catch Albert DeSalvo. In a Boston Globe article titled Public Reaction, Disgust, only in Massachusetts, one interviewee referred to the situation as a circus. Another suggested the state must be setting records for, quote, stupidity, corruption, and negligence. Albert was sent to a maximum security prison called MCI Walpole. It was a tough place, but he made a life for himself there. And according to investigators, he allegedly figured out how to make money. A good friend of mine just started working at MCI Walpole, and there was no question in anybody's mind there that Albert was involved in the drug trade. He was working in the, in the hospital of the prison, and he had access to drugs, and so he was stealing drugs and selling them. A district attorney told the New York Times that the only problem they had with Albert when he was in prison was his trafficking in drugs. Although I haven't seen official records confirming the drug sales, Albert did have other schemes going. He made necklaces to sell in the prison gift shop. Inmates would reportedly call them DeSalvo's chokers. Outside of prison, his name was starting to gain notoriety beyond the press coverage about his arrest, conviction, and escape. One of Albert's interviews with a Boston reporter inspired a creepy song by a local band. It's sung here by the journalist Dick Levitan. My body is reckless, my mind unaware. In these moments of madness, I fight, claw, and tear. And around the time Albert had confessed, he had received a book deal offer from an author named Gerald Frank. Gerald intended to write a book about the Boston Strangler killings, and for his cooperation, Albert would receive a percentage of the royalties. According to court documents, these would be held in trust by Albert's legal team and used to pay off legal and personal debts. Gerald Frank's book, The Boston Strangler, became a bestseller. In 1968, a film adaptation splashed onto movie screens. Why did 13 women open their doors willingly to this stranger? The Boston Strangler stars Tony Curtis, in a powerful characterization unlike anything he has ever portrayed on the screen. 
All of this garnered unwanted publicity for Albert, who stopped receiving calls and letters from his friends and family. Over time, it seemed Albert had changed his mind about wanting to be known as the Boston Strangler. In 1969, Albert filed a lawsuit against 20th Century Fox over the Strangler movie. The lawsuit claimed that the cinematic portrayal of him as the, quote, vicious and depraved individual known as the Boston Strangler was false. According to court documents, Albert worried that the movie was harming his reputation and that it might hurt his chances of being able to appeal his case for the Green Man conviction later on. He asked the court to prevent the movie studio from continuing to show the film. In the suit, Albert also claimed that his initial contract with Gerald Frank should be voided because he was mentally incompetent when he signed the contract. Finally, Albert sued his own lawyer, claiming he had never received any of the royalty money paid out by Gerald Frank, $18,000 in total. The court ruled against halting progress on the movie and determined that Albert's contract with Gerald Frank was indeed legal. However, Effley Bailey was ordered to pay Albert the royalty money. By this point, Albert had recanted his confession. He seemed to want nothing to do with the Boston Strangler crimes despite confessing to them a few years before. Then, one day in 1973, Albert DeSalvo reportedly made an urgent phone call. He wanted to meet with a forensic psychiatrist named Ames Roby. Dr. Roby had evaluated Albert back at Bridgewater after he was brought in for the Green Man crimes and had testified at his trial. Albert had something he wanted to say to him. But before Albert could meet with Dr. Roby, on a Sunday night in November of that year, Albert was in his quarters in the prison infirmary when someone, or some people, made it through a series of locked doors to his ward. He was stabbed multiple times. His body was reportedly discovered the next morning covered by a blanket. Albert never got to tell Ames Roby what he so urgently wanted to tell him. Albert's brother, Richard DeSalvo, told ABC News in 2001 he suspected someone wanted to silence his brother. I think Albert was murdered in prison uh, because he was going to come out and talk about the fact that he wasn't a Boston Strangler. And uh, it was going to be a big story. He's going to name names and tell how he come to uh, confess to be the Boston Strangler. Others theorized that DeSalvo's prolific drug dealing somehow ran afoul of other inmates or corrupt prison guards at Walpole. Three men were tried for Albert's murder, but their trial ended in a hung jury. Albert DeSalvo was buried at Puritan Lawn Memorial Park in the Boston suburb of Peabody, Massachusetts. He was 42. Albert had been laid to rest, but the Strangler story still had more twists and turns ahead. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. 
Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. In trying to solve the Boston Strangler case, some of the pieces never quite fit together. Police and journalists had looked for patterns to explain how the Strangler chose his victims. After the first seven killings, reporters Loretta McLaughlin and Jean Cole at The Record American published a chart that laid out the women's addresses, ages, occupations, how they were killed, and whether their apartments had been ransacked. They listed the victims' interests All seven shared an interest in music. They had similar personal habits. All of them were described as neat, orderly, well-groomed, and punctual. Loretta and Jean reported that police had noted many of the Strangler's victims worked as nurses. Maybe the killer worked in a hospital and stalked his victims there. And what did it mean that at first, the Strangler had killed older women and then switched to include younger women? Was that to throw off police? Criminologist James Allen Fox says there could be a much simpler explanation for how the Strangler chose his victims. He was choosing them based on the fact that there was a woman who lived at that address, oftentimes determined by the the name of the doorbell. Uh, I rang one, nothing happened, right? And then I looked at the other one, I rang this bell here. Not knowing who it was, but I rang it anyhow. You understand me? I just saw that Nina Nichols, uh, her name was on that bell. Whoever was home... Assuming it was a woman, that would be his next victim. Maybe it was whoever was unlucky enough to be home alone, answer the door, and believe a guy who said he'd been sent to fix something in her apartment. And as for the medical connection, it could have been a coincidence since nursing was one of the few careers open to women at the time. But half a century later, The question of whether or not Albert DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler still provokes debate. Albert DeSalvo didn't seem to match a key trait in the task force's criminal profile of the Strangler. Albert didn't appear to hate his mother. In one of the files from the Harvard study, the social worker wrote that Albert had a, quote, strong attachment to her. Then there was the question of evidence. There was very little left at the crime scenes, and none of the evidence could be tied back to Albert at the time. Richard DeSalvo, Albert's brother, told ABC News in 2001 that he had serious questions about the lack of forensic evidence connecting his brother to the crimes. Were your brother's fingerprints found at any of the crime scenes? Nothing. Not a thing. And uh, that's another thing. I I wouldn't make a bet on it and, and trust on anything like that if... If you said somebody went and did something to uh, 12 or 13 people, women in that case, and left nothing, no shred of evidence in any way, shape, or form. No fingerprints, no footprints of your brother. Not a thing. Absolutely not not a shred of anything. 
and, and any of the reports or anything you read also, they say the same thing. They don't have nothing. And it said in some of their reports it was all political, but uh, we don't have anything on Albert, but we have them for lesser crimes. And that's the way they ended it. By lesser crimes, Richard means the series of rapes committed by Albert as the green man, not the murders of 13 women. But others say the details Albert shared about those murders are too vivid and accurate for him not to be the killer. Detective Phil Di Natale had listened through 50 hours of recordings of Albert's confession. John Di Natale says Phil was convinced. No one except the murderer could have known all the minute details DeSalvo described. He answered without a second's hesitation. He didn't have to think. He knew. There were telling details. Parade Magazine reported Albert pointed out to investigators how he tied his shoes using a surgical knot. Investigators knew the strangler had used surgical knots when he tied ligatures around the victim's necks. According to the magazine, this information had never been shared publicly. Albert was grilled about the layout and furniture in each apartment. Well, now, you were described that situation and you grabbed her from behind and fell back on the bed. Yes. Was there anything unusual about the bed? Yes. The bed had long posts. Did it have a canopy over it? No. Just long posts? Yes. You know, you want to say that DeSalvo, he, he could have read that in the paper? Like I said, they went and they read the papers. And they said, no, this fact wasn't found in any newspaper, so he couldn't have read it. It wasn't found in the autopsy reports. It wasn't in the police reports. It wasn't in the crime scene photographs. I mean, they went through every piece of data collection that they knew where information would have been kept to say, okay, DeSalvo could have read it or seen it somehow, somewhere, but there were so many pieces that he knew that couldn't have found any place. Two years before he died, in a 1985 interview with North TV looking back at the Boston Strangler case, Phil Di Natale dismissed skeptics who said Albert DeSalvo wasn't the killer. They can say he isn't in one sentence, but I can go and produce documents after documents for days and days and show you that he is. Still, Phil Di Natale's grandson, Miles Jewell, says there was no satisfying conclusion. The case was never officially solved in a courtroom, right? There's the court of public opinion, which was swayed at the time, you know, by politicians to kind of say, we got the guy and that's all that matters. But for Phil, that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to just like, you know, wave and say it's all over. Like, it needed to be done in a courtroom. There was that due diligence. There was a process, and he wanted to see that through. So I think it's a flat out, I can just say, Phil was wildly disappointed with the outcome of the case. It literally chewed him up and followed him around for the rest of his life. And ultimately, it wasn't right by the victims in the public to just let this thing go. It wasn't until 2013 well after both Albert and Phil were dead, that there would be a definitive break in the case. During the fall of that year, two families connected by the Boston Strangler case used their own channels to try to prove that Albert DeSalvo was not the Strangler. It was an unlikely alliance. They were relatives of Albert DeSalvo 
and of the family of Marianne Sullivan, the Strangler's last alleged victim. Casey Sherman, the nephew of Mary Sullivan, said he had found discrepancies between Albert DeSalvo's confession and the autopsy report on his aunt. He doubted Albert was the killer. The families gave permission for the bodies of Mary Ann Sullivan and Albert DeSalvo to be exhumed for DNA testing. Then came the results. Boston police held a press conference. Today we announce a major development in the investigation into the homicide of 19-year-old Mary Sullivan. Advances in the sensitivity of DNA testing have allowed us to make a familial match between biological evidence recovered from the crime scene and a suspect in Mary Sullivan's murder. That suspect is Albert DeSalvo. The DNA match of the evidence left on Mary Ann Sullivan's body confirmed that Albert DeSalvo raped her and presumably strangled her to death. This was not the outcome the families had hoped for, but there it was. It was the difference between solving a crime in the 1960s, the days of the Boston Strangler, and modern forensic science. Criminologist James Allen Fox says investigators could shore up old evidence by checking it against a close male relative of Albert. Where familial DNA comes into play, we can match DNA from a crime scene to a relative of the perpetrator. And that has been done, and that has allowed police to, to solve serial murder cases. And in fact, it was used to link Albert DeSalvo to the murder of Mary Sullivan. So things have changed a lot one of the reasons why there are fewer serial killers today. Serial killings peaked in the 1980s and have declined since then. In 1987, there were close to 200 active serial killers in the United States, according to a database run by the Radford University and the Florida Gulf Coast University. In 2019, there were only known to be two. In addition to advances in DNA technology, James Allen Fox says there are other reasons why serial killings are less common these days. Potential victims are a lot more careful. People are not hitchhiking, for example, the way they did back in the 70s and 80s. People have cell phones. They can call for help if they need to. They're less likely to be stranded when they get a flat tire. And the tools that the police have are much more advanced. So you may have wannabe serial killers today, but they're captured before the point where they become so prolific that we would call them a serial killer. Other than the Mary Sullivan case, which was solved with DNA in 2013, all the other murders attributed to the Strangler are still officially considered open cases by the Boston PD. So the story of the Boston Strangler still lingers. A live case even though most of the people associated with it are no longer with us. Like Gene Cole and Loretta McLaughlin, those two enterprising reporters who kept Boston up to date on the case. Gene died in 2015, and Loretta passed away in 2018. I knew Loretta when she later worked at the Boston Globe, where I worked as a reporter. I admired her for not only the energy she brought into the newsroom, but for her insatiable curiosity. She was a force. When I met her, she wasn't a crime reporter anymore. She was one of the top editors at The Globe. Back then, I didn't even know about her connection to the Boston Strangler case. And later on, I would work with her son, Mark McLaughlin, at The Globe as well. He told me that even late in her life, Loretta kept in touch with Ethley Bailey, 
and they would talk about the Strangler story. Mark says it stayed with her, too, for her entire life. What motivates people to do horrible things, I think, is endlessly fascinating to people, as much as it may also revolt them and they may find it awful. What makes people tick is never going to not be interesting. And when they go in a terrible direction, I think the extremity of it is in itself fascinating. I was drawn to the Strangler store in my own work as a journalist. What new clues could I find in that sealed archive about Albert DeSalvo's brutal childhood that could shed light on the crimes he would eventually confess to? The Boston Strangler case is still a real-life mystery. Some 60 years later, the crimes have grown distant, but they've left their mark on the city. Like the missing address at 77 Gainsborough Street, where the first victim, Anna Slessers, lived, now renumbered 79. A small effort to try to hide the past and the horrors inside that are still too difficult to contemplate. On the next episode of Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler, a conversation about a new retelling of the Boston Strangler story to the eyes of women reporters who recognized a serial killer with silencing women and fought to get their stories heard. When I discovered Loretta and, and learned about her story, it all sort of clicked for me because I felt like that was sort of this character story imposed on this murder mystery and this serial killer story that I was really passionate about telling. I'll talk with writer and director Matt Ruskin about Boston Strangler, his new film for 20th Century Studios, starring Kira Knightley, streaming on Hulu beginning March 17th. Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler is a production of ABC Audio and a companion podcast for the 20th Century Studios film, Boston Strangler, 20th Century Studios is a division of the Walt Disney Company, the parent company of ABC News. This podcast was written and produced by Meg Fierro, Carrie Ann Thomas, Mara Milwaukee, and Stephen Smith. Our supervising producers were Susie Liu and Sasha Aslanian. Music and mixing by Evan Viola. Scoring and mixing by Vanessa Lowe. Special thanks to Amira Williams, Ariel Chester, Madeline Wood, Rachel Winsloff, and Josh Cohan. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Liz Alessi is VP of Audio.